Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes strong language. It therefore may be unsuitable for our young listeners or other people who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast, bringing you high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. Today is December 12th, 2019. I'm Owen Michael. With me is Lonnie Coombs. Hello, Lonnie. Nice Hello. to see you again. Good to see you. Lonnie's a legal analyst and former Los Angeles County criminal prosecutor who's covered cases including the trials of Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, and George Zimmerman, among many others. Uh, it's great to have you back. Last time you were here, uh, we kind of talked about your Oxygen documentary series, uh, Death at the Mansion, about the Rebecca Zahao case in San Diego, mm-hmm. as well as the show Final Appeal with Brian Banks. Yeah. How's that going? Uh, good. Right now I've been working on a couple other cases that will be on Oxygen. Um, been on the road in Virginia and Atlanta and Fort Worth, um, digging into cold cases. Similar type of stuff. Yes. How is it going? Good. Good. Very interesting um, cases. And, you know, traveling across the country, you see all different levels and types of prosecutions and law enforcement. And uh, it's interesting to see it. Well, good. Uh, glad to have you back. Um, let's get into our cases this okay. week. We've got uh, for this week, we've got a Florida man accused of murdering his wife is also in trouble for legal shenanigans after allegedly hiding money and failing to hire a lawyer once his public defender was dismissed. A lot to get into on that one. We've got an illegal cross-country road race. Uh, has the winner rethinking his public statements on the caper? The first, a shocking case out of Alabama. Mm-hmm. Lonnie, can you tell us some details, uh, what we know so far about this developing case out of Birmingham, Alabama, about the kidnapping and murder case of Camille Cupcake McKinney? Yeah, this is such a tragic case and really horrific for uh, everyone out there because we're talking about a three-year-old little girl as the victim. Uh, Camille I guess she went by the name Cupcake McKinney, and apparently she was at an outdoor birthday party on Saturday, October 12th, you know, as lots of little children are at that age. Um, And that was the place that she was last seen. She disappeared. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was a massive search for her. The FBI got involved, the U.S. Marshals, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Crime Stoppers. I mean, everybody just converged on this because we're talking about a three-year-old little girl essentially disappearing in in broad daylight with a lot of people around. Mm -hmm. Um, And people started putting up money for rewards. It got up to $20,000. They got over 400 tips. Um, Unfortunately, 10 days later, they found her body in a dumpster that was taken to a landfill. And essentially, they found uh, her decomposed body. 
So two people were arrested, Patrick Stallworth and his girlfriend, 29-year-old Derek Brown. They were both charged with capital murder for a child under 14 years old, uh, and they could face the death penalty if they're convicted. Um, This week was the preliminary hearing. So in Alabama, the case first goes to a preliminary hearing in front of a judge, and the judge decides if there's an enough probable cause mm-hmm. for the case to be put then in front of the grand jury for an indictment. And uh, at first they were supposed to be done together in the preliminary hearing, but then the judge allowed them to split up. So it's just Stallworth was going first. Um, and at this point is where you really get to hear the evidence that the um, prosecution has, because it's like a mini trial that they put in front of the judge. And so a lot of details came out that people hadn't known about yet. Um, very sad details. And essentially they put up a, a timeline by the lead homicide detective who testified for two and a half hours. And essentially on that day at 12.02 p.m., they have on surveillance video, um, they have Stallworth going into a shell station buying almost $19 worth of candy. This is near the Tom Brown village where the party was going on. Mm -hmm. Then about five minutes later, two preteen girls were leaving cheerleading practice and they said that um, Stallworth and Brown approached them in a blue SUV and Stallworth was said to them, I'm looking for a girl that looks like you and then offered them candy. And those girls got nervous. And so they took off. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's video, uh, security video of that. But you can't really see the occupants in the car. So it's interesting how the timeline is set up here by all of these different video cameras all over. Um, other kids told the police that they also saw a man in a blue SUV who was handing out candy to children there in this housing community. Um, and eventually we come to Camille, who um, got into the van. There was a 10-year-old little boy who said he saw her um, go with the people and that she was crying. Mm-hmm. And there's another video that shows a man talking to two small children. One of them is Camille, and that eventually she walks off with them. So uh, when Stallworth was first detained, uh, he consented to let the police search his cell phone. And they found child pornography on his phone. Nothing with Camille, but child pornography. So they filed some charges against him. Um, and he essentially told them, look, I was there in that area. I did buy candy, but I know nothing about this little girl. I had mm-hmm. nothing to do with it. Um, and then they did track his cell phone. And that time when she was abducted, there was a lot of movement between the Woodside condos and the Parkway Villa apartments. And eventually, according to the detective, Brown, the girlfriend, told the police about a construction trash dumpster that was at the Parkway Villas. And they followed up on that and they searched the dumpster and that's where they found Camilla's body. So uh, maybe you could explain this uh you just said that the judge allowed them to do this separately. And I'm curious as to whether is that whose advantage is that? Uh, because wouldn't it be better for them to be not necessarily have a united front, but it, isn't that worse for <laughs> both of them if they do it separately? Because it does appear that the lawyers are basically saying, no, it was, it was him. And she's saying she's saying it was him. And he's saying, no, it was her. Absolutely. Whereas if they would have stuck together, then I mean, I, I'm not sure. What, what does that indicate to you? Well, it's it's actually uh a great thing when there's two defendants, they usually split up. There, there's no such thing as a united front. Divide and conquer is, exactly. is always the way to go. You've got somebody you can point the finger at. Now, the preliminary hearing is just in front of a judge, but when you get to a jury, you're sitting there and you can make your cohort into the biggest monster in the world who was abusing you and forcing you to do things you didn't want to do and you were just, you know, this helpless little victim yourself and you're there in front of the jury. They see you as a human being. They might start to empathize with you. They might feel sympathetic for you and they can just say, oh, it was the big bad monster that we don't really know who's 
not in the courtroom. So it's a big advantage to any defendant who has a co-defendant where they can point the finger. And as you see going through this evidence, you know, that he's going to keep pointing the finger at Brown at his girlfriend. So you see Brown's the one who told them where the body was. Right. Of course, Brown's going to say something very different in her preliminary hearing, right? And then the autopsy came up and said that she died from asphyxiation mm-hmm. by suffocation. Mm-hmm. And, and this was something new that nobody had heard, she had toxic levels of methamphetamine and trazodone, mm-hmm. which is an antidepressant used to treat insomnia. Now, interestingly, the trazodone is um, stalwart. He has a prescription for that. But in the preliminary hearing, his defense attorney said that, well, it's actually Brown who uses meth and likes to mix it with the trazodone because she likes the way it makes her feel. And so she was stealing this from Stallworth. And that's who was using that combination. And Stallworth only uses marijuana. So pointing the finger again at um, Brown. So the second time Stallworth talks to police, he says, look, I want to tell you, you know, what happened. I did see Camille that night for the very first time. Where I saw her was in our apartment. I came home. My girlfriend was there. Camille was sitting on the couch with her. And I said, wait a minute, that's not your kid. And she said, I want to keep her. And, you know, why don't you do something sexual with her? And Stallworth says that he's, this is all his story. Exactly. Exactly. And he goes, oh, no, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And he says he goes outside and smokes a cigarette. And then later at some point, his girlfriend ends up, you know, playing with the little girl, taking her clothes off, taking her barrettes out, giving her a bath. Mm -hmm. And then at some point he says that the girlfriend puts her hands over Camille's nose and mouth and then Camille is asleep. That's the way he describes it. Next thing he remembers, he wakes up the next morning in bed and his girlfriend is in bed with him. And that's really all he remembers. The police also tested um, a plastic cover that had been on a mattress in the living room and they found blood on it. Mm-hmm. And there was DNA from Stallworth, Brown and Camille. So the, the, the Stallworth and Brown, obviously, that's um, nothing to see here because they both live in this domicile or at least are there often enough that that wouldn't be enough. But how the heck does um, uh, Camille's uh, DNA get in on this? Yeah. And we should say that uh, they said as well this week that according to DNA analysis, they haven't found anything uh, on her body that would indicate uh, sexual assault but they also said she was decomposed enough that there could have been any evidence, evidence like that could potentially have been deteriorated. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. So the defense made a big deal about this. Hey, look, they swabbed her in, in all the areas of her body where you would think there would be DNA from a sexual assault. There was nothing so she wasn't sexually assaulted. And the prosecution said, no, no, you can't make that conclusion. She was so de- decomposed. It's 10 days later and, exactly. it's, and it's in garbage, you exactly. know, ostensibly if she's found in the, in the yeah. dumpster. So I'm sure uh, a forensic analysis uh or a forensic expert from another side of this could probably dispose of that theory. That's definitely not locked in as far as that goes. Exactly. And and that's what the judge said. I mean, the defense said, look, there's not enough here for probable cause to say he's the one who did it. The judge said, no, there's there's plenty here. It's going to go forward to the grand jury. From state to state, that's fairly common as far as capital murder. In, in, In other words, you have a preliminary hearing and it goes to a grand jury before it goes to an actual full criminal case. Is that, is that accurate? Is well, be, yeah, uh, it, like, it's, it's a little bit different in some places. Like in California, you can either do a preliminary hearing or a grand jury. They essentially perform the same um, function. And if they both find that there's enough probable cause, then it goes to trial. But here in Alabama, it's kind of interesting. It goes first to the preliminary hearing 
and then to the grand jury who indicts, essentially decides the formal charges and then goes to the trial. Which seems to me uh, an extra fail safe. Mm-hmm. But is that uh, sort of uh, is that excess? Do you have an opinion about that legally or does the legal community at large say like that's just an extra hurdle and you'd prefer to sort of take it straight to the grand jury versus a preliminary hearing? I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Well, the the joke has always been that a grand jury will, you know, indict a ham sandwich. Mm-hmm. So as far as a fail safe, it, yeah, it's not like it's a really, um, you know, probing investigation where they're going to say, oh, no, we don't see a lot here. Because a grand jury, it's done with just a prosecutor mm-hmm. and witnesses, uh, no judge. Right. Right. And there's no, no counter, there's no there's not a defense there's attorney. There's no defense in there. attorney in they there. Can't pre- they're not presenting. They're just saying, here's some stuff that we found. Right. We think this is enough. What do you think? And that's the ham sandwich. Yeah. Um, right. And as you say, they both face the, the death penalty if convicted. Uh, it seems to me that with that extra step of the preliminary hearing, that's um, if you are convicted through this process, then that's an extra, uh, an extra sort of fail safe. At least abstractly. Yeah, the, the preliminary hearing really is because it's in front of a judge. Um, a lot of times, if the defense doesn't feel like they have a lot, they won't put really put anything on. It is just sort of, you know, a formality. But mm-hmm. a lot of times, if the defense says, you know, really believes that this is either a weak case or that the guy's not guilty, they will put on a full case in front of the judge, just, you know, hoping that the judge will see through this and, you know, have, have the courage to say, I'm which, just Which seems maybe to be the case here. Uh, we should say this is Thursday, uh, the 12th, and tomorrow, Derek Brown, uh, the, the girlfriend is, uh, I believe, scheduled to be in front of the judge and make their case on that. So we'll see. There could be further fireworks. That's right. And and the other uh, strategy here we've got to remember is there's a lot of media attention on this. Mm -hmm. So even if the defense didn't think they were going to sway the judge... This is a time they're playing to those potential jurors. They Uh, want to put out, you know, their side of the story as many times as they can. What's the um, what's the rule in Alabama or even uh, state to state as far as uh, do you have if you're playing to the media, is it unethical or is this just part of the process? I mean, these hearings are public, right? Yeah. So the, the grand jury isn't, but, but the a preliminary hearing is. Not, but the preliminary yeah. hearing, mm-hmm. anybody can sit in on mm-hmm. this. So all these reporters, in fact, national now, as we're saying, yeah. uh, they're sitting in there so they can, they can do this. And so that's to the benefit of... Well, who knows who, whose benefit it is here, but uh, right. if it's at this level, then the defense, you want your attorney to sort of use that if possible. Absolutely, because the prosecution's putting in a lot of information here, too, that they probably didn't need to put in front of a judge to get it over the sta- standard of probable cause, but they're putting in a lot of juicy details in here. So they're using that opportunity also. But even in the court of public opinion, as to use the uh, hackneyed term, even if you've got all that stuff and you're sort of swaying the public and you think you're winning it this way, that doesn't really necessarily sway the case much, does it? Because ostensibly in a jury trial, the jury's uh, sequestered from this public information. Hopefully they don't know too much about the the background of the case in jury selection and in the impartial thing, who cares what the public says? You know, this is the thing. What do you think about that? I think that especially in this day and age, if it's a big case like this one, um, people know about it. And and apparently the community's got very involved um, and, you know, to help try and find this little girl because everyone was so outraged that one of their, you know, you have to protect your own children, right? Everybody gets on board for that. And so... um, um, a lot of times, very rarely are juries sequestered. And even if they are sequestered, that media stuff is out there more than ever. You know, being able to get it on your phone, get it on your yeah. computer. You don't have to just listen to the news at night to get, you know, the that, update. So I guess maybe that's sort of a, mis- a misconception. And, you know, we all 
us lay people watch law and order for however long. And we, you know, we hear about the high profile stuff, but I guess abstractly I'm thinking most, uh, juries are sequestered and yet no. they're not. I haven't been on a jury trial myself. Mm, um, interesting. Not yet. I actually, I'm <laughs> you looking put it out there. You're going to start getting jury summons now. That's exactly. what happens. <laughs> That's fine. I'm ready to do my civic duty. Absolutely. I've got the time. You would find it fascinating. I agree. Seriously. I mean, I wish I could sit on a, a jury because being in the jury room is such a unique experience. Um, and it's, you my, know, unless you've done it yourself. My mom was a, a foreman. She got elected to be a foreman in a, in a uh, I forget what kind of, I think it was a fatal DUI case in Florida. Florida, I believe it was in the Miami area, but uh, yeah, she was not uh, particularly interested in being a, a, the forewoman, but uh, hence why she got uh, she got uh, uh, chosen for that. So that's even one more step. So she thinks she got chosen because she had no interest in it. I, she was reluctantly uh, she was the reluctant leader yeah, of yeah. it, I suppose, and you know she's a fairly fair-minded uh, person or whatever. So, you know, obviously I'm a little biased on that, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was what it was. And uh, I think it only lasted uh, just maybe three or four days or something like that. Oh, but you're right. She wasn't sequestered. And, uh, I think she went home every day. It's very expensive to sequester a jury. And I it's imagine. a huge imposition on the jurors. You know, you're not getting to go to home. You're not with your family. Sure. You can't do child Could care. Be weeks at a time. That's right. And isn't the... It almost seems, well, I guess we only hear the high profile stuff, but it seems uh, uh, that much more, every time you hear about this stuff, it is always, uh, you're hearing about it in the, in the course of a mistrial because somebody did get a newspaper or, mm -hmm. you know, they snuck a phone in or they, or they watched TV or something like that. So yeah, yeah that's and some fascinating there's, stuff. There's also a theory that, you know, because the jurors hate it, that they right. start to get a bias against the prosecutor because they feel like it's the prosecutor that is making this whole thing happen and, you know, and making their lives horrible. Yeah. So. I mean, it's not for everybody to be put up in a hotel and, and do the thing, although it doesn't sound terrible to me, but, you know, that's not to be disrespectful of the system. Yeah, um, it's not as funny as you would think. I mean, you're on a schedule. You're told when to wake up. You're told when you can eat, when yeah. what you can eat. I mean, it is, yeah. and you, you can't get, watch TV. What, the per diem is like 14 bucks a day or something if like you're that. Lucky, it's it's yeah. pretty, uh, you know, minuscule compared to, you know, if especially if you're, you know, a bartender or a cab driver or something like that, where you're, you know, you're losing money yeah. every yeah. day. So uh, anyway, as we say, uh, this is developing and we will have more details uh, on truecrimedaily.com as this thing develops. More to come for sure. So next up, we've got the case of David Tronis out of Orlando. Owen, you want to tell us about this Florida man case? Yeah. So this, uh, I have a lot of questions for you legally uh, on this case. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of details here. I'll try to get to all of them as accurately as I can. David Tronis is a 51-year-old Orlando, Florida man. He's arrested in August of last year, 2018. He's charged with first-degree murder and the death of his wife, Shanti Cooper Tronis, who was 30 when she was killed on April 24th, 2018, uh, police alleged that uh, he killed his wife in their Delaney Park, which is a neighborhood of uh, a neighborhood within Orlando. It's a fairly nice house. Medical examiner ruled that she died from blunt force trauma and strangulation. Tronis told police that he found his wife unconscious in the bathtub uh, and that she had fallen in the tub. He uh, found her there tried to uh, revive her and then called police. Police, however, say that uh, Tronis had gone out walking. First, they accuse him of actually uh, beating her and strangling her to death. Her The autopsy, the medical examiner found that she had died from blunt force trauma and strangulation. Police say that uh, David Tronis had gone out and walked the dogs. He went for a walk. He was doing housework for hours before calling police. That's their contention. He has pled, uh, he's pleaded not guilty to murder um, so a lot going on here. WFTV reports that two days after he died or after his wife died, David transferred $252,000 from her bank accounts to his own legal representation. Uh, 
10 days after that, he transferred their house from a shared trust to himself. Uh, Shanti's first husband uh, has custody of the couples of, of their son. So he became a state administrator weeks after that. So some of this stuff is Florida state law and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I'm trying to figure that stuff out. In a court fight filing, though, he said that he thought the asset transfers that David had done were uh, uh, obtained by fraud. Uh, there was two life insurance policies that were, he claims they were uh, obtained by fraud and or forgery. And uh, he said that uh, Tronis had tried to collect on one of the policies about a week before he was after, uh, arrested for his wife's murder, which was a couple months after she died. Um, ex-husband also alleges that Tronis conspired with Tronis' own ex-wife to get this money. That Those details remain to be seen. We'll, we'll, we'll get to those if we learn more. But uh, so here's kind of somewhere, some of the stuff that goes legally sideways. Tronis had paid a defense attorney $250,000 for representation last year. Uh, it was around November or so. He, he gave 250 grand to this law firm for his defense, but he couldn't continue to pay into this year. That attorney requested to withdraw from the case in April over a conflict of interest, telling the judge it was, quote, due to privileged information after that law firm received the homicide report from police, according to the Orlando Sentinel. So two things happening here. Um, Tronis claimed that he gave all his money to the to the to legal defense. Then he ran out of money, and then he said uh, he was before the judge. And the judge, he said basically, the judge asked him, "Do you want to hire another attorney?" "No, sir, I can't. I'm broke. Uh, it looks like I'm going to have to get public representation." So the judge assigned him a public defender, and then, as well uh, as well as as well. The withdrawal from the original law firm, according to due to privileged information after receiving the homicide report, what does that indicate to you? Privileged information is the whole kit and caboodle when you're a defense yeah. attorney, right? Yeah. And even if, you, if you're a defense attorney and my client tells me, yeah, I did the murder, um, blah, 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 I'm giving you all the details. I mean, I watch too much TV, but uh, <laughs> essentially, if you're a lawyer and you, you, if I'm your defense attorney, I hear that information, I can't do anything with that. Yeah. Is that, do you, obviously, this is speculation here. Yeah. What, what, is the, what do you think of what's happening so, there? So this is total speculation, but there are a couple things that, you know, reading between the lines I'm looking at. One is Tronis paid, you know, a quarter of a million dollars here for um, defense representation and they didn't represent him that long. No, that's a lot of money for a high profile, uh, you know, high powered attorney. Yeah. You got basically three months out of it or four months out of it. maybe. Exactly. Only one court appearance or maybe two. It's unclear on that. But uh, and all of a sudden he's saying, you know, I don't have enough money to pay him more. I mean, I would think that you'd get at least, you know, a few more appearances out of that. Maybe the trial. Right. Right. So it seems like there's sort of a a personality conflict going on, which happens a lot between, you know, defense attorneys and um, clients, especially if they're uh, a strong-headed client. Um, the other thing, too, though, is th- this thing about after receiving, you know, the homicide report and due to privileged information. I don't know if this is true or not, but sometimes if, um, you, as you're talking about the defense and the client, the defendant is adamant that they want to do something where they're going to get up on the stand and lie, and the attorney knows about it, they can't suborn perjury. So if they don't want that to happen and for some reason they feel like they can't control their client, they can't stop them from doing it, you know, they can ask to withdraw. So it might be something like that, but and, I don't so, know. And when, we, when we're talking about suborning perjury, you're, you're saying uh, actively allowing it or encouraging uh, a, a perjury to happen. So 
even though I'm a passive person, I'm the defense attorney and I'm saying, no, you really shouldn't do that. But I know that you're going to do that, even though I'm telling you not to, that's still suborning because I have knowledge that you are going to do that. Or? Well, what you can do is you can just say, you can go up ahead and t- take the stand and testify and say what you want to say. And I'm just not going to say a word. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and some, uh, I have no further, I have no questions for my client. It's exactly right. I'm not saying one way or another, but that also sort of signals to the jury that there's something the jury, going on. Everybody in the room right. understands that, boy, you're, 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 you're taking a dive here. Yeah. You're, 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 uh, you're tanking this right. uh, on right. purpose. So, uh, there's also speaking of which, as you say, the $250,000 didn't get you much with this law firm, but, uh, there was an additional $30,000. Uh, the prosecutors say Tronis gave the same law firm. Uh, that wasn't disclosed that they found out about later. Mm-hmm. The attorney says that money, it didn't go to us. It was, it was basically going to a legal uh, trust uh, just in case, you know, we've got this separate container that we put this $30,000 in there, but you're right. So they gave the $30,000 back to him. So now, by the way, he has, or actually they didn't give it to him. They gave, they put it back to the estate that this whole, that the, the, the dispute is about. Um, so all sorts of shady money mm-hmm. moving movement and that kind of thing. And honestly, you're not sure from who. I mean, you know, everybody might not have clean hands in this. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I won't speculate about Florida, but uh, that's the that's the. Uh, a month later, uh, I'm not saying anything. I'm not suborning anything. Uh, exactly, right now. <laughs> I have, I, that was unfair on, on my behalf. I apologize to all Floridians. Um, a month after that, uh, the judge uh, did appoint a public defender for Tronis. And then in June, uh, after this stuff came to light, the judge then vacated the order for the public defender because he said, it turns out you you probably do have enough money to do this. Uh, Right, because the Florida standard for indigent status is $24,980. You're you're too broke to hire a lawyer and and they'll do that, you know. um, No, if you make 25 grand, you can't get a public defender. You have to make less than that. Right. So, right. So, and I had a question about this too, and I'm wonder whether this is state to state. Can't I, even though I make more than twenty five grand a year, can't I opt to take the bubble, uh, a public defender? Well, you can do that here, but then they, then they will um, charge you and they'll prorate it. Really? Yes. You don't you don't get it. I mean, you no have the right to counsel, but as far as the public defender, no kidding. You're gonna have to pay for them if you have a certain amount I of money. I don't know if that's uh, widely known, and maybe that's just my own bias, but I, th- I guess I thought everybody thinks that if you have a public defender, basically you're getting pro bono uh, legal work there, but yeah. The, 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 depends the, on how much you make. It's a sliding scale, huh? Uh-huh, yeah. Interesting. And the judge will usually say that, like, I don't think I have enough money, and they'll say, well, okay, I'll give you a public defender for now, but we're gonna do an accounting, mm-hmm. and if you're making more than that, then you'll have to pay, you know. You, is it a percentage or is it case I by case? I wonder about that um, because it still might be cheaper to get a public defender and, um, you know, ostensibly they're on the same uh, legal footing. Yeah. Uh, you know, they may have fewer resources, obviously, than a private law firm, et cetera. Um, but I'll tell you this, as far as public defenders, you know, they get a bad rap, but public defenders are in that courtroom every day. Mm-hmm. They know the judge, they know the clerk, they know the the prosecutor. They work together a lot. So if you're hoping to just sort of like, you know, somebody who really knows that system, that courtroom and can probably get you a, a fairly good deal, it's not a bad idea to consider going with a, a public defender. Yeah, I have a friend of a friend in Memphis who's a public defender and he's um He's a busy guy, and boy, he he does it for the passion of it. I mean, yes. he's, he's absolutely in yeah. it for all the right reasons, and it's you know it's not about money or anything like that. He's working hard. That's right. And, uh, and there's know, a lot of really good ones. Yeah, I was impressed that really the guy the guy cares a lot, and I can't see how you would get into that 
especially considering you could certainly make a lot of money in the private sector That's if you right. decided to do this in a sort of a, 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 a noble calling yeah. um, uh, as, it, as it goes. Um, so further shenanigans here, the, or, the Orlando, I should say alleged shenanigans, the Orlando Sentinel also reports that uh, prosecutors allege Tronis hid another $123,527 in the accounts of a limited liability corporation he had created weeks before he was arrested. Um, I've been looking you know, vaguely familiar with this kind of stuff, but it's fairly easy to create a, a limited liability corporation, go into LegalZoom or you go into one of these things. And it sort of indicates to a layperson that there's a presence of mind. But on the other hand, if I'm a decent lawyer, like this is nothing legal about opening up a trust or opening up an LLC and, you know, I'm just investing some money when mm-hmm. I want to go into business after this or whatever the case was. But um but this is also in the context of claiming to be indigent, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so the judge referred the matter to the state's attorney's office in Florida to investigate the fraud, this alleged fraud, uh, and to recover any taxpayer money that was used in the public defense, as, as you indicated there. Um, they, The Orange Osceola State Attorney's Office has stated that they'll begin the investigation after the murder trial is complete, which brings us to this week. Um Tronis appeared before the judge this week and said that he has still not hired an attorney. See, he's just he's just one of these obstreperous people. He just doesn't want to go along with the program here. You really. So, yeah, I mean, boy, putting a red flag in front of the bull kind of thing, you know, well, it's kind of stupid because judges, you know, they want their courtrooms to run efficiently. Yeah. And the last thing I would think a defendant would want is that judge to be irritated at you. And if you're clogging up his courtroom and thinking that you're going to get your trial put off more and more just because you're not hiring an attorney when the judge told you to. It's the first time I've ever heard something like that where you're like, you have to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I just refuse to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's unclear exactly. He, they said he's in contact with an attorney, but that attorney themselves uh, has not decided whether to take the case or not, according to the Orlando Sentinel, which speaks to what you're saying. This client may just be a really difficult person when we consider the the previous withdrawal from the other law firm mm-hmm. and this guy or this person or this firm is sort of like oh, I don't know about this um I I wonder it, it obviously pure speculation if I know I did it and I know the case is stacked against me etc then this is just then all I can do is play for time so I might as well but he's also being held this entire time too yeah. but I guess county is better than prison Etc. That's what they say. Uh, yeah. As they say, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's speculation. Uh, and as you said, the, the prosecutor himself, they think that it's an attempt to de- delay the trial. The judge has uh, scheduled a January 3rd hearing to rule on Tronis's legal representation. They did not change. The judge did not change the date. The murder trial is set to begin, which is January 21st, which is basically six weeks from now. So it's really uh, uh, it's really kind of compressing this entire thing mm-hmm. here. And, um, you know, like I said, it's, it seems like you're really taunting um, everybody involved here. Um, well, the judge is trying to play hardball and, you know, give him a, a deadline. Right. To, to force him to get on the ball here. So at a January 3rd hearing like this, what, uh, that's basically it's just a repeat of the thing. Mr. Tronis, have you hired a counsel? No, Your Honor, I'm still looking. Okay, you know what? Then what? What, what do you? What, what? So the January third, that gives it's about three weeks before the trial is set, right? right. So if he's not gotten an attorney, the judge might say, "Okay, I'm going to assign you another attorney, but you're going to have to pay 
for him eventually, you know. Um, and then that way they have enough time to prepare for the trial because he wants to start that trial. And really shooting yourself in the foot, though, because if you've got a brand new representation here, you only have now three weeks That's right. to get get into it. That's versus right. Versus this entire, you had basically, this is the second year now yeah. um, that you had all this time that you could have prepared for this. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, the other thing about this guy, too, you know, we find out that he has been holding on to some of this evidence. Right. Right. I mean, you've got so apparently the prosecutors just said that they had some new evidence, these bloody sheets that were taken from the home uh, where Shanti was found dead. And the defense has been holding on to it. A private investigator working for the defense, Billy Lane, had been holding on to the bloody sheets for nearly a year without disclosing the evidence to police or prosecutors. Huge. Huge. Extremely unusual. Who's on the hook for that? The private investigator probably? Or they can say, I was dumb. I didn't know. It was actually the defense team that told me to do this. Or um, like, who's on the hook for that? Well, here's the thing. Um, Can you play dumb on that? No, you can't play dumb on that. I didn't know know what I had. A private investigator, well... I don't know about that. I mean, a private investigator should know what it is, right? They should be asking, yeah. what is this? It's bloody sheets. I mean, come on. Obviously. You know, that's going to be something important no, for somebody. No, they were maroon sheets, Your Honor. And uh, <laughs> I didn't know that there was a blood stain on them because it was, a, they were black sheets or something. Not a very good private investigator. <laughs> I, I, I mean, right. Uh, but it seems nobody involved on this side of the, the thing here is, is, is doing this particularly well. Right. So I wonder about that. But yeah, that's a huge detail. And uh, thank you for bringing that up because that's a, that's a huge thing. Um, but again... Do, does the judge or does the prosecution then say, all right, we're going to go after you separately for for obstructing justice? Would that be? Well, here's the interesting thing, because I'm not seeing anything about that. No mention of, you know, the prosecutors being really mad. They're just saying, hey, we've got this new evidence. It's been tested and here's what we found. So there's, uh, I think, all discovery. So the prosecutor has to disclose all their evidence to the defense, right? Because they're the prosecutors are the ones bringing the charges. It used to be that the defense could kind of sit and hide the ball until trial and spring all these surprises on the prosecution. But thank heavens, through the years, it kind of evolved to reciprocal discovery is what it's called, where once the prosecution discloses their evidence to the defense, the defense has a reasonable amount of time where they then have to disclose to the prosecution what they're planning to put on for their trial evidence. You know, witnesses, experts, physical evidence, which this would obviously be. Um, but they didn't do that here. Okay, so what is the punishment if you don't follow through on that? Well, a lot of times it's that you bar that evidence from coming in. But based on this, the results this that they helps. got, this would help the prosecutor wants it. Yeah. Exactly. So that might be why they're not doing anything about it. But the other thing is, because it was being held on by this private investigator, we don't know if, if it's been contaminated been or not. Yeah. And it actually kind of goes back and forth because I guess there was a fitted sheet and a top sheet. And on the fitted sheet, they found DNA of David and Shanti. Right. And on the top sheet, it's David and an unknown male. So that could be used by the defense to say, hey, look, there's this unknown male who came in and killed her. There's a there's a a, a, a sort of an. Speaking of that, there's an unrelated detail that uh, uh, basically the ex-husband of of Shanti alleges this, and and police have commented on this as well, that uh, case evidence reportedly shows that Charnas went to a gay men's bathhouse the day after he got married to Shanti. And uh, the ex-husband alleges that Charnas had had frequent gay activity during marriage. That's obviously, uh, that's his public statement. We have no proof of that one way or the other, but that's... Yet another wrinkle, as mm-hmm. far as, of the expression, but mm-hmm. um, as far as that goes, um, yeah, I mean, really just a kind of a messed up case, and I wouldn't want to be defense on this. No, 
No. And I'm sure so the prosecutors. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> I get why, wanting to kind of pull out of this thing. Like, this is a mess. Uh, this is a sure loser. Speculating, of course. Yes. Um, yeah. You never know. I'm telling you, you never know uh, with trials and things like that. But but he, he's doing everything he can to really. I mean, we know, have we have, uh, you know, we have uh, we have these conceptions of, of how Florida is and it's a, the Florida man thing and all that kind of stuff. But uh, by your estimation, you've got some experience with state to state prosecution and, and legal systems and stuff. Is it kind of the Wild West or is this? It seems that there's an inordinate amount of crazy stuff that you hear out of Florida, but is that just the high profile stuff coming up to the top? Or do you find that it's um, in your semi-professional opinion, that's sort of like a wilder kind of uh, scene out there legally? You you know, this is pure speculation because I have not done it. But it does. I don't know if it's the media just picks up on them more and focuses on them more. But there's by far a higher percentage of crazy cases reported about mm-hmm. from Florida than any other case. Every mm-hmm. time you hear about a crazy case in the media, it's a Florida case. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. I deal with it every day. Yeah. Right. So, um, I mean, there's crazy cases in California and in every state, but not to the level that you see in the media. Yeah. Coming from Florida. I mean, you know, you have one-offs all over the place. There's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, sensational stuff. I mean, part of that, I've spent a lot of time in Florida myself, Miami and South Florida and that kind of stuff. It's a wild, woolly, international kind of crazy type of place. And it, definitely uh, attracts a certain amount of characters, uh, people that like the lifestyle or people trying to get off the grid or for whatever reason, Florida has certain laws that others don't as far as uh, dis- disclosure and things like that. So, uh, yeah, and again, no, no disrespect to the state, but uh, it always does seem that uh, they got some high profile stuff here. Of course, I'm certainly uh, throwing fuel on the fire here by bringing up a Florida case in this <laughs> thing. So uh, I'm looking in the mirror. Um, so I have another couple of legal questions about this next story. Um, this is about a cross-country road race and public comments by the winner. So uh, some of our viewers of a certain age may remember a movie from 1981 called The Cannonball Run. Uh, it was a movie starring Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise, and it is a huge celebrity cast in the 70s and 80s. Um, I was When I was a kid, I watched it. I, I loved it. Um, I, I've seen parts of it since then. There's some problematic stuff, that the politically correct stuff that um, is best left in the 80s. Uh, however, it's the, the, the movie's about an illegal cross-country road race from New York to L.A. It's based on an actual ra- uh, underground sort of race that uh, was actually happening in real life uh, called the Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash that uh, began in the 70s and it's sort of underground. There's no real rules. It's just here's your starting mark. Here's your ending mark. Whoever gets there first gets the prize. It's highly illegal, obviously, because it's a, a lot of speeding and mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. They're, so they're still doing it. I was uh, I was unaware of this. I've heard of under other stuff, the Gumball Rally and, and other cross-country races like this. But uh, I was surprised to see that they're still doing this. So this year they did it uh, again. Um, now, oh. is it a race where the, a bunch of cars all start at once and go, or is it just one car doing it so, time, with time-wise? As you may imagine, nobody's real clear on what the uh, on oh, okay. what the what the details are the on that. Um, in the movie, it was uh, everybody starts basically; they're all in a line, and you know they do a punch card basically, and you know then you're up and punch card, and then you're up, and then okay. and then they go. Um, it's unclear uh, these days how that's done. Obviously, they're not going with a whole lot of details on this. Uh, the guy that won it this year is an Ohio man. Uh, his name is Doug Tabbitt and his driving partner, Arnie Toman. Uh, they won the unsanctioned, unsanctioned race this year. So they drove from Manhattan, uh, basically downtown New York, 
city to Redondo Beach, which is uh, the South Bay here in Los Angeles. By the way, tough to get to Redondo Beach. It's not like going to downtown. Yeah. It's, uh, it's tough to get there. So uh, New York to Los Angeles in 27 hours, 25 minutes. It's a new record. That's crazy. It's insane to me that you yeah. can do that drive in one day. Uh, reaching speeds of about 180 miles per hour. They, uh, uh, since they allegedly got there 10 times. Uh, they averaged about 103 miles an hour. Can you imagine averaging 103 miles an hour for 25 hours? Right. Uh, that's crazy. I would like to imagine. I mean, I'm a, th- I'm a thrill seeker. I, that sounds like a lot of fun, but, um, <laughs> you know, more maybe in the veins of like the 24 hour Le Mans race where it's a yes. close track or something like that. Yes. Because, um, so, but they, uh, they allegedly took steps, um, not just against law enforcement, but they had various things that were watching for like deer crossing the roadway mm-hmm. and things like that. And, and they've taken pains to talk about how safe you know, all these safety measures they took and even like the guy's wife hates that he does this but uh you know somehow he's said you know honey it's okay I, being extra safe we're wearing helmets they weren't wearing helmets no. well uh, it, and they t- they had this souped up car that they then changed so that law enforcement would not realize it's what they were pretty, driving it's pretty ingenious so um yeah and by the way this is 2,800, uh, 28, excuse me, 2,825 miles in 27 hours. It's, it's insane. It's basically, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, as you say, it's a souped up 2015 Mercedes a- AMG sedan, which is a fairly, you know, it's a, it's a sporty sedan, but it's not, uh, it's not over the top. They had a boosted engine with 700 horsepower, which is huge. A 45 gallon auxiliary gas tank, excuse me, an extra gas tank with, uh, so they went about 600 miles before refueling. That's pretty great. Use that in LA. Um, they had a police scanner in it. They had, uh, high tech radar detectors and uh, radar deflectors apparently that could, uh, basically make their, themselves invisible to the radar signals. Uh, they had thermal scopes, to, as I said, to look for speed traps, uh, cops on the side of the road, deer, uh, all the way ahead. Um, the two code pilots were driving the front and there's a guy, they have a spotter riding with them in the back with the high tech binoculars. You could see down the road two miles uh, for two miles and it's stabilized the whole thing. And as you say, they took off the markings of the car. They took the Mercedes off it, the, the logos, the emblems. They basically co- uh, painted it a nondescript color. They didn't want to be flashy, obviously. They changed um, like the tail lights. Right. I mean, the, yeah. And in the movie, and it's... In the movie, there was like a Lamborghini, a Lamborghini Countach, and there was a, you know, there was like a, a DeLorean, I think. There was a, a an ambulance. There was all these souped-up cars, and then there was a couple of them that were kind of stealthy, like this. These guys went with the stealth, uh, the, the stealth thing, and they had lookouts. The whole thing. It was a very organized situation, um, and. They gave a couple of interviews. The guy Doug Talbot, uh, Tabot, who run who won this thing, gave interviews after winning, and the, he just talked to Road and Track, talked to Cleveland Plain Dealer. This is an Ohio guy. Mm-hmm. Um, talked to Cleveland.com, gave an interview. It's obviously made, made international headlines. And he says, now this week I maybe shouldn't have done this. I'm getting more media attention than I thought. <laughs> so I, he even said that some cops had, uh, had congratulated him and, you know, they had their scrapes. Um, also, we should say safety-wise, reportedly, only a broken arm is the only injury that any uh, uh, racers have suffered in this 40-year history, you know, who, who's to say? But uh, that's what they claim. Um, what the heck? Mm-hmm. If I'm a prosecutor in any of these states or a prosecutor in Ohio, the guy's on record saying we did this. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me the case could be made if you really wanted to. I mean, maybe it's a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, not worth the time. But if you're sort of 
speaking of putting a red flag in front of a bull kind of thing, yeah. it's like well, you're a little bit thumbing your nose, you're a little bit taunting yeah. all these jurisdictions that you went through, especially the Midwest states and stuff like this, where, you know, um, I've been through some of those states. They don't like, they don't like speeding. And that's right. You know, from outsiders. Um, right. And, um, it seems to me that there was probably some surveillance video somewhere on uh, along a 3000 mile trek here. Absolutely. There's gotta be this stuff. So what do you, what are your thoughts on that? As a former prosecutor, <laughs> yeah. what, what would you think? Here's the problem with this. Um, you know, as a prosecutor, you deal with a lot of uh, vehicular deaths. And when I hear that somebody went 103 miles for 27 hours, 123 miles per hour. Yeah, and got up to 180. What's 200 miles an hour? It's yeah. insane. It's insane. Now, on the one hand, I'm thinking, wow, I love all the preparation they took and all the things that they, I mean, they were meticulous in their planning yeah. and, and thinking of every little detail. But then I'm thinking, how many dead bodies there could have been? Could have been. I mean, if they were coming at me at 180 and one little thing happened, who, who's dying and how many people? They're two miles down the road. Now they're here. That's like exactly second, right. You know? That's exactly right. And, you know, it, it's kind of like the drag racing. I mean, I... I prosecuted sure. a lot of cases, you know, that end up, they think it's fun. Right. They think it's glamorous it's and somebody ends up, because it happens so easily. Mm-hmm. People don't realize how easy, when you're at those high speeds for somebody to die. So, um, and I think it's lasted for 40 years because they stayed under the radar. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. They they kept That's quiet about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, that they, and that, that secrecy was for many reasons. I wonder whether some of these other racers are pissed off at I'm him for, sure they you are. know, you violated the code here, bro. Yeah, yeah. Because, like they said, you know, they're worried about copycats. Absolutely. Because this guy got all of this attention. It went international. I mean, you know, London and, um, you know, Germany, Croatia, Australia, they were yeah. all reporting it. And then he goes on CBS Saturday morning and inside edition all the tv people want cool to talk TV. to him it's right a, yeah, yeah. how stupid is he mm-hmm. so he, but here's the problem for the prosecution you have the confessions essentially because he's talking about it right you have the printout here that has been published by road and track that has yeah. all this digital data on it which yes. by the way you have a digital trail yeah. uh, on your car that says i did this yeah yeah and and you've been saying i did it i was the one driving so is there a case it's you can't do it just based on a confession you've got to have this other stuff to support it because anybody can come in and confess to a crime that's not enough because uh, some people do. It's crazy, but mm-hmm. they do. Right. So but having things like this and there's video out there and they even said they hold on to the video for a year because they don't want, you know, a statute of limitations issue. Um, so I'm sure there's video out there, surveillance video, security cameras that, that probably caught this. So, yes, a prosecutor could probably dig into this and go after them. Um, would they? Probably not, except now there seems to be like they need to make a statement. Because it's so blatant. Because it's so blatant and, and it, so dangerous. It, it almost seems like this guy's trying to, you know, uh, by the way, no disrespect police, no disrespect prosecutors. I realize what I said. Um, I really i am sorry about putting this uh, red flag out here. Yeah. Gosh, please don't throw the book at me. Yeah. Like, um, I'm never going to do it again. Public he statements. Said, yeah. He says, yeah. He says, I'm never going to do it. No, yeah. I don't even care if somebody breaks my record. Um, but it's true, you know, uh, despite all these meticulous planning and, and high tech and spending thousands and thousands of dollars to, to do this, it's still... It could have, you know, within those 27 hours, going that fast, one little minor miscalculation, you might have destroyed yourselves and driven off a cliff or driven in a ditch and flipped your car or whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, someone else. So absolutely about as dangerous as, I mean, you yeah. know, I'm getting up in my age, but uh, 
when I'm on the freeway and somebody goes by me, like I'm standing still, that is like, I'm like, you jerk. Exactly. Like, I, I hope something, I hope there's yes. a cop somebody. I please, hope somebody stops somebody, you. Please do this because, you know, you are going to hurt somebody. Yeah. You know, I mean, definitely in LA County, we're uh, exposed to that quite a bit with all these roadways and mm-hmm. uh, just some better, bad uh, drivers. Also, uh, just out of curiosity, this isn't quite uh, related, but I'm just curious about this. I see this a lot in California. Uh, I haven't noticed so many other places that, cars will drive around with their paper plates, uh, like the dealer plates and things like that. Yeah. I have a friend that uh, has a high-end Lotus, and he does the same thing. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I'm pretty sure it's like, you can't get me if I, uh, if, it's a, if I run a red light or if I'm speeding or whatever in a traffic camera. I have a red Lotus. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically nondescript because if I don't have a, a license plate on it. Yeah. And yet, I don't see too many people getting pulled over. I've gotten pulled over for an expired tag for Christmas, yeah. you know, and uh, versus the uh, versus the paper thing. So, w- w- do, is there a official stance on that or an unofficial well, thing, LA County wise? I, I don't know what the policy is now. I mean, the other thing too is some cars don't have like a front license plate thing, right. and right. and you can get cited for that too, but right. not very. I mean, just, it doesn't happen that often. So right. there are things that police officers can cite you for. Um, it's not necessarily always worth your time right. to you know. I, I could be doing other things or responding to other things. On the other hand, though, and you know, I've worked at a local news station in town here before and seen more than my share of uh, high speed police pursuits of these vehicles, and occasionally they'll get away with it because uh, you know they'll ditch the car they'll manage to drive so crazy that they have to pull back and whatever but they don't have any we, one of the drawbacks of following police pursuits is that we don't always get the follow-up i mean it might be a, a week later or something like that that they figure out uh you know this identifying characteristic of this car and then go after somebody at their house or whatever else but um that's that's just a personal thing that it, it drives me crazy when i see those paper plates in town i'm like i'm playing by the rules well how well, you know you, you have a, a million dollar car here what's your what's your deal man but i, I feel like that's the, that's the thing exactly i mean you know pick my battles anyway so yeah we'll uh we'll, we'll look forward to uh hearing more from doug tabbitt and in and, and the gang on that one but uh, don't don't speed don't be a jerk no. in traffic so we get comments on a lot of our stories on truecrimedaily.com and our various social media channels um we run a lot of stories, and this one in particular this week, speaking of uh, driving, bad drivers, etc. I'll describe this for our listeners. We've got a woman who was arrested on suspicion of DUI after she got her RV stuck in the wrong end of a Taco Bell drive through uh, <laughs> If you can't see this, there's a do not enter sign, in, and, uh, and of course the, the arrow pointing outwards in the <laughs> drive through of this um, of this Taco Bell and this giant RV. This is a, it's a pretty nice one. looks, a, looks it's modern. Big. It's big. It's big and long. Um, she, the female driver here allegedly drove in the wrong way and took this corner and they are, uh, kind of wedged uh, in this narrow space here. So not only did they get uh, wedged in there, but they went in the wrong way and uh, she got arrested for DUI. Um, So some of our commenters, of course, Jacqueline V says, must have been Taco Tuesday. Sharon K says uh, she may be just tired. Um, Well, Sharon, she was actually uh, charged with DUI and uh, police don't do that lightly. So, you know, it was the field test and blood alcohol, et cetera, and so forth. And maybe she's also tired, but uh, poor decision making and don't drive drunk, especially a giant uh, vehicle like this. Um, and then Andrew M says uh, what probably a lot of people are thinking. I'd have been so pissed if I was next in line and this monstrosity pulled around the corner the wrong way. Um, 
Yeah, don't do it. Don't uh, don't. You know, lots of late night Taco Bell runs, but uh, make sure you're not driving drunk That's and right. you're following the rules. And uh, signs matter, especially that blatant, a big "Do not enter" sign, drive through exit. Do not keep the uh, Taco Bell fans <sighs> from there. I sympathize. I sympathize. <laughs> uh, I haven't had Taco Bell in a long time. Um, it's good though, right? It is you know, the uh, hot satisfying. Sauce, that crunch. Yeah, yeah. A couple times a year, it's, it hits the spot. <laughs> well, that is our show for this week. Lonnie, thank you for being here once again. Thanks for having um, me. Where can viewers and listeners kind of find out more about what you're up to? Is it the Oxygen Channel? Yeah, Oxygen Channel, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter, Lonnie Coombs. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, thank you again for being here. Of course, we'll include your details and descriptions of the podcast in the video. Um, find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and on YouTube, and get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you... Don't do crimes.